Previously on Flying the Line, Lorenzo looks for ways to keep his airline flying. This podcast is brought to you by the Airline Pilots Association. ALPA supports its pilots through a variety of resources, including Pilot Peer Support, or PPS. PPS is a support network that connects ALPA members with trained pilot peers to talk about any personal or professional problems you may be experiencing. For contact information and to learn more, visit alpha.org pps. Welcome to the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association, a bridge from the book Flying the Line, Volume 2 by George E. Hopkins. Chapter 14, The Continental Strike. Alpa's Dark Night of the Soul, Part 2. The peculiar nature of the Continental Pilot Strike's beginning introduced a new impediment. Repeatedly, Lorenzo would ask the pilots he telephoned how they had voted on the strike. He knew full well that there had been no formal strike ballot, merely a show of hands in crowded meetings at the various domiciles. These expressions of mass approval of fighting Lorenzo were so enthusiastic that many believed they distorted actual strike sentiment and silenced less committed pilots. One disaffected former ALPA member complained that the strike vote in Houston was like a college pep rally rather than a union business meeting. His complaint had validity, one that thoughtful observers believe magnified pro-strike sentiment a sure guarantee of later trouble. No strike can succeed without wholehearted support from the rank and file, and union leaders who invent such support take a grave risk. In Continental's case, there was ample reason to doubt the pilots' commitment long before the strike began. They'd crossed the picket lines of both the flight attendants and the mechanics, so their members weren't prepared to respect their own. Ironically, ALPA's offer to sustain the strikers financially similarly served to amplify a commitment that was far less certain than it appeared. ALPA's pre-strike benefits policy at the time called for a flat payment to each striker, regardless of rank. To ALPA's national officers, paying the Continental pilots to not work seemed the surest way to guarantee that they would stand solidly together. But there were long-range hazards in this short-range approach. Striking captains would get captain pay, and striking first officers would get first officer pay. But a first officer crossing the picket line would automatically get promoted and draw captain's pay. So ALPA's policy of paying generous strike benefits was less effective than hoped, and turned out to be a financial drain as well. As the strike dragged on, the monthly assessments became a burden and a divisive issue within ALPA. Generally, pilots from airlines that were doing relatively well, such as United, Delta, and Northwest, paid their assessments. Pilots from troubled airlines like TWA and Eastern did not. Making up the shortfall strained ALPA's financial resources tremendously and would lead to the creation of the Major Contingency Fund, or MCF. 
ALPA's leaders hoped the MCF, a kind of permanent strike assessment, would eventually eliminate the need for specific strike assessments and the internal strife they generated. The strike benefits at Continental were enormous, and the union soon realized it needed a special contingency fund, a war chest. ALPA's BOD, in an unusual June 1985 special meeting, would recommend creation of the MCF to be financed by dues increases of 1% of each member's income. The membership, finally convinced that deregulation and the turmoil it created warranted it, subsequently approved the MCF levy in August 1985 by mail ballot. In mid-October 1983, as the Continental Pilot Group struggled to whip their strike effort into shape under crisis conditions, Continental MEC Chair Larry Baxter seemed to reach the limit of his endurance. The pressures on him were enormous. He had pursued a hard-line course of action with Lorenzo, and he had been wrong. Clearly, Lorenzo wasn't bluffing. Baxter collapsed from exhaustion during a special executive committee meeting in Washington, D.C., where he had gone to present a strike budget for the national officer's approval. Continental's MEC had no choice but to recall him for what it believed were valid medical reasons. On October 13th, at an emergency meeting in Houston, the MEC replaced Baxter with Dennis Higgins by unanimous vote. Baxter would recover shortly and challenge his removal, but his support on the MEC had been eroding even before his collapse. Higgins's sole demand as a condition for assuming the chairmanship was that Floyd Carpenter, the veteran Texas International ALPA activist, have a seat on the negotiating committee. Higgins's first task was to put into concrete terms the negotiating committee's whatever-it-takes pledge of September which Baxter had resisted. Within 24 hours of taking over, Higgins had a proposal for $30 million in concessions approved by the MEC. But the turmoil on the MEC had unnerved a big batch of 110 shaky pilots who crossed the line. This flux of crossovers during the third week of the strike emboldened Lorenzo, who toughened his negotiating stance so nothing came of the so-called October concessions. Lorenzo, encouraged by the poor solidarity Alpa was displaying through the first half of October, stalled for time, until the Continental strikers proved they weren't going to totally collapse, Lorenzo would hang tough. Alpa would have to find another way to carry the war to him. One promising avenue of attack proved to be a dead end. Because Lorenzo's scaled-down strike operation included some new, high-profile international flights, ALPA tried cashing in on its overseas connections with various labor groups. The idea was that militant British, Australian, and Japanese unions, in the spirit of international solidarity, would refuse to service Continental aircraft, perhaps even capture a B-747, pull the wheels off, and turn it into a permanent ground monument. The AFL-CIO supplied a consultant named Ernie Lee, who was supposed to coordinate this overseas campaign against Lorenzo. Lee made trips, accompanied by Continental pilots, 
to talk to the unions. ALPA was told that the Australian and British labor unions would help its American counterparts. However, there were limits to what they would be willing to do, and it was unreasonable to expect pilots in other countries to do what they themselves would not. For all its weaknesses and false starts, the Continental Strike began to pinch Lorenzo once Dennis Higgins took command of the MEC. The surge of October crossovers ebbed and was not followed by any more in-house picket line crossers in November. With the arrival of Captain Bob Keyes, the legendary Dr. Strike of Northwest's many skirmishes with management, briefed by ALPA to provide technical and organizational support to the Continental pilots, their lines stiffened. Although plagued from beginning to end by a shortage of picket line manpower, under Key's expert tutelage and a threat to cut off strike benefits, the Continental pilots bent to their unpleasant task, often joined by wives and children as they carried placards through airport terminals. They began mastering the arcane aspects of a strike, not willingly, but with grim effectiveness. Too grim, in some cases. Sporadic episodes of violence marked the strike. A bloody, decayed elk head tossed through a plate-glass window of one crossover's house. Two continental strikers, carried away by their fury, caught with a bomb they intended to plant in another crossover's garage, and countless acts of petty harassment directed at non-striking pilots. In short, the standard fare of labor strife, that shadow that emerges when livelihoods and career come under threat, what former ALPA President Dave Benke once called the heavy boot. The purpose of this increasingly efficient strike operation was to generate pressure for serious negotiations. As we have seen, fear that Lorenzo would run out of pilots before the end of October motivated him to talk, but he was also under court order to do so. With Floyd Carpenter, a veteran of many run-ins with Lorenzo at TXI, working every conceivable angle, the Continental negotiators did come up with a settlement Lorenzo would buy, sort of. In fact, these negotiations were heavily concessionary on ALPA's part. During tense contract talks in late October, when Lorenzo wasn't sure he could staff his airline and ALPA worried that strikers might continue to cross the picket line in large numbers, a compromise seemed to emerge. MEC Chair Dennis Higgins was anxious to see these negotiations succeed, but he recognized the disastrous effect dashed hopes would have. By November, the Continental Pilots' negotiators seemed successful, but well aware of Lorenzo's devious abilities, Higgins remained wary, for good reason. The company claimed it needed an additional $50 million in work rule concessions. While ALPA proposed a deal that met the $50 million, Continental said that it didn't. ALPA responded, asking management to rewrite the proposal ensuring it met their $50 million benchmark and that the union would accept it. However, management refused. The Continental pilots had all but surrendered, 
and thought Lorenzo would settle once the technicalities in the back-to-work portion of the agreement were ironed out. From Alpa's point of view, some of these technicalities involved serious sacrifices. Among these was Lorenzo's insistence that about 100 permanent replacement strikebreakers hired off the street in November remain in place, seniority notwithstanding. Alpa could not formally agree to this, but that shouldn't have scuttled the whole effort. The national pilots post-1948 made life too unpleasant to bear for their picket line crossers, but they were forced to accept them, so the continental pilots would surely have been able to do the same. Perhaps Lorenzo knew this. So, in an episode similar to the one he had played out against the TXI pilots in 1980, he backed off from a deal he had previously committed to. During this standoff over the back-to-work portion of the settlement, Lorenzo seemed to have concluded that his accelerating hiring of ex-Braniff pilots would shortly allow him to win without further concessions. He appeared to enter a take-no-prisoners mode, just as Continental's pilot negotiators, unaware of this development, rather naively believed they could resolve back-to-work differences through an arbitrator. UCLA professor of law Benjamin Aaron, who undertook this role in early November, would find himself on a fool's errand. Any arbitrator, when bringing two bitterly divided positions into agreement, will insist that each side make concessions. By the time Aaron got the case, Continental's pilot negotiators were only quibbling over the back-to-work agreement. They had beaten a heavy retreat on all economic questions. Lorenzo insisted that work rules had economic implications, and he demanded that the pilots accept totally the emergency work rules, which largely dispensed with bidding and seniority rights. Lorenzo adopted an all-or-nothing position. By Thanksgiving, Professor Aaron admitted defeat and quit with a blast at Lorenzo. He acknowledged that he required the parties to come to the table willing to make substantial changes in their demands. While the pilots' union had met those demands and exceeded them, the company had shown a continued unwillingness to move from its position. So the strike moved into 1984, with both sides now awaiting the decision of the courts. Short of winning the economic contest outright, something Alpa had never been able to do during any previous strike, the judges and lawyers controlled the future. Eventually, Lorenzo would win on two fronts. A series of decisions by Judge R.F. Wheelis between January and June 1984 found Lorenzo's bankruptcy filing legitimate and not merely a dodge to void union collective bargaining agreements, decisions that flew in the face of Lorenzo's public admission that he had a labor problem, not a bankruptcy problem. Saying that Lorenzo had made reasonable efforts to negotiate a modification of his labor contracts, Judge Wheelis then allowed him to impose emergency work rules. Alpa immediately appealed the judge's preliminary ruling in January, but before a higher court could hear it, the Bildisco decision dealt Alpa a fatal blow. In February 1984, by a single vote, 
the U.S. Supreme Court upheld the essence of the Houston Court's preliminary finding. For ALPA, the critical part of the Bildisco case came in a 5-4 ruling that union contracts could be canceled even before a bankruptcy court ruled on that business's request. This was exactly what Lorenzo had done and what ALPA had been contesting so stridently in its appeals. Ultimately, ALPA's campaign in Congress to overrule this aspect of the decision with new legislation would succeed, but far too late for the Continental strikers. Even worse, the Bildisco decision reversed a previous finding by the National Labor Relations Board that Bildisco had engaged in an unfair labor practice by canceling its union contracts unilaterally. ALPA had been counting on this NLRB finding to defeat Lorenzo. The Bildisco decision was an unmitigated disaster for ALPA, carried by five Republican justices appointed by Nixon and Reagan. The only two Democratic appointees remaining on the court, Justices Byron R. White and Thurgood Marshall, joined with moderate Republicans Harry Blackman and William Brennan in dissent. Answering William Rehnquist's opinion, these dissenters wrote, The majority has completely ignored important policies that underlie the NLRB. Calling the decision a puzzling misreading of congressional intent, Chairman Peter Rodino of the House Judiciary Committee announced that he would begin immediate hearings on a law to overrule the decision. But the new legislation would be many months in coming, and useless to Continental striking pilots because it was not retroactive. When Congress subsequently outlawed what the 5-4 Republican majority on the Supreme Court had done, ALPA won a victory of sorts, and Lorenzo's action at Continental would stand as an isolated footnote to labor history. However, with the Bildisco decision sealed, the Continental strike was effectively lost. Next time on Flying the Line, ALPA raises safety concerns as Continental continues to fly during its protracted strike. Thank you for listening. This has been Chapter 14, Part 2 of Flying the Line 2 by George E. Hopkins, Copyright 2000. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast. To listen and subscribe to more in this series, please check us out online at alpa.org or find us on all major podcast platforms. Until next time, this is the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association International. Production copyright alpha 2023, all rights reserved.